Welcome to Cross of Gold, the podcast where two brothers, one a Christian in the political wilderness and the other a socialist in the spiritual wilderness, work to rediscover faith in each other, our communities, and the American experiment. We have begged and they have walked when our calamity came. We beg no longer, we defy them. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. Spectre is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exercise this specter. Pope and Tsar, Metternich and Guizot, French radicals and German police spies. Where is the party in opposition that has not been decried as communistic by its opponents in power? Where is the opposition that has not hurled back the branding reproach of communism against the more advanced opposition parties, as well as against its reactionary adversaries? These are the first words of a document written on the almost literal eve of the revolutions of 1848. This document would go on to be one of the most influential documents of all time, and consequently it is the subject of this episode, as my brother Chase, the Christian brother, and myself Cyrus, uh, begin to uh, discuss it. So Chase, why don't you uh, tell the audience what we're talking about today? So we've been dancing around a lot of issues, understanding each other, Cyrus and I, as a socialist and Christian, him in the spiritual wilderness, me in the political wilderness. And we decided to um, get to the foundations of it. We're going to work through the manifesto uh, in a few parts, work through the four gospels in, in four parts, and really try to understand uh, what, what the fuss is about. Um, whether it be from uh, Marx and Engels' perspective or from Jesus' perspective and, or the, the, the biographers in those Gospels. And so this first one, we're going to chop up the first part of the Communist Manifesto, um, bourgeoisie and proletariat, and uh, address some of the biggest claims and maybe some of the biggest uh, disagreements. Cyrus, is that all right? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, as we uh, enter into sort of a, a new season so to speak of our podcast and a, a little bit of a redefining and reorientation of where we're going i think it's really useful to start with the foundations both of the christian gospel and of of, of communism okay so, cyrus, so that, go ahead okay cyrus so uh, maybe you can give a little bit of background to folks before we really dive in i've got a couple pieces of this i i obviously disagree with a couple that's really interesting uh maybe high level what was the situation the manifesto was taking place in? You said the revolutions of the 1840s, I think something like that. Um, and then, you know, what largely is it? Maybe give us some summary, uh, you know, analysis at the very high level before we can dive in here. Yeah, for sure. So as I said previously, the Communist Manifesto was published coincidentally on my birthday, February 21st. Oh, but just a few days before a revolution, uh, revolutionary movements began in France that caused chain reactions of revolutions to spread all across Europe, in Germany, in Italy, in Hungary, in Hungary, in Austria, basically everywhere where there was conflict. The reason there was so much conflict and the reason it was such fertile ground for uh, revolution at the time was because those that decade in particular was called the Hungry Forties. Uh, there was, I think most Americans are probably familiar with the potato famine. Um, in Ireland, Old Irish, but that potato yeah. famine did not uh, was not limited to the island of Ireland, and it went across all of Central and Northern Europe, um, causing massive hunger. Uh, there were tons. It was at the very early stages of capitalism, and it was in its infancy. So there were a number of speculative bubbles that popped in the years uh, in the 1830s and the 1840s, most notably with the railroads. Um, and at that time, uh, you know, as is often the case today, when those bubbles pop, uh, the speculators are not the ones who uh, you have the suffer the most consequences. It's, it's the people who depend on the speculators investments, the workers. Um, and so at that time, as well as crises of overproduction, which were something that had never really happened before in, in the history of the world. So that sets the scene for the revolutions that, that come after. Okay, and you also have monarchies starting to wane, and you said you had capitalism as is at its infancy, and so that's like along with the monarchies probably competing with the competing ideology of socialism or, or communism, and then 
this like feudal system uh, as well as, you know, international mercantile system as well. Yeah, for sure. Like despite the, um, the some successes of the French revolution and the British move to a constitutional monarchy, uh, those successes didn't extend out into the future really for France as it returned back to a monarchy and uh, it didn't expand after the rest of Europe. So you have all these old conservative powers who are still in control pretty much everywhere. And then you really have these two classes that are developing in capitalism uh, at, at, you know, in all this uh, flux of social change. Okay. So the, the two classes that Marx talks about in this first section of the Communist Manifesto are the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. What's that mean? So the bourgeoisie, it comes from the term the burghers, uh, which was sort of the people who had the most economic and political power in the feudal era after the fall of the Roman Empire. They, they were the ones who controlled most of the, the land uh, of, of various hamlets and towns and the, even cities. So when industrialization began to become a reality as things like the steam engine and the loom, the power loom became a reality, they were the ones who had the capital already to invest in making their own factories. Okay, so a lot of the landed aristocracy um, or the, you know, maybe the more powerful wealthy at the time, when things start to open up, they're the ones that get to take the most advantage of it. Basically, yeah, the richest of the merchants and the remnants of the aristocracy in the various countries and the nobility who still had access to land and capital. So that's largely who begins to make up the bourgeoisie. Okay. Um, so we're skin- just contextualize what is, so we're still sort of finishing the, the scene setting of the manifesto. Um, okay, that makes sense. And then you've got some rural versus uh, suburban city life action happening as well. Yeah, exactly. So most of Europe in that time was very much rural. Uh, I don't know the exact figure, but it was the great majority by a huge margin was uh, peasants who lived in the countryside and worked on noble lands. Um, Now, in most of those countries, um, and specifically I'm talking about the UK was sort of the first, the uh, peasants lived um, on common land. They, they, there were most public spaces like forests and just open rural areas was considered the commons. So even if you got kicked off your noble's land for whatever reason, um, you could still essentially, you know, grow turnips for your family and uh, sell them at the local market if, if you really needed to. Um, now that changed with the advent of capitalism and something called the Enclosure Acts, which was something that was replicated across the rest of Europe as well. Uh, and that's those common public lands that were accessible by pretty much everyone uh, being turned into private lands, private property. So peasants could no longer go into the forest and, you know, hunt for their food if they needed or collect firewood even. Um, that was pay for it. Yeah, you had to pay for it. You had to enter into a system of property relations. And at that same time, if you can't farm, then you have to go into the cities uh, to find work. Um, otherwise, you starve. So the pr- early proletariat was made up of those former peasants who had once lived off the land and, you know, paid rent to the local sheriff to give to the noble of their crop um, was now not really allowed to do that because the growing industrialization required a lot more workers. It's another reason the enclosure acts were put in, uh, into place in the first place is to compel the, the peasants to leave the, the commons um, so that they would have to go find work. Uh, so the proletariat's made up of those people and made up of the, the uh, kind of rapidly deteriorating craftsmen, artisan class, the, the members of guilds. You know, you might have your, your clockmaker who uh, spent his whole life developing a craft, you know, might spend a week or a couple days per clock, really, you know, putting himself into that. Um, but as industrialization comes, they say, well, you might make a nice clock but we can make a lot more clocks for a lot cheaply, a lot more quickly. If instead of you making the clock, you're just the guy who puts uh, in the hour hand on the clock face as it passes you by in the assembly line. Sure. Darn tootin' and more people get clocks. Um, yeah. And at that same time, the other, the other aspect of it is free trade came to being. 
as a result of the early uh, development of capitalism. Yeah, probably more on the municipal local level. You know, you're not paying tariffs and things to get stuff from city to city or province to province. Exactly. Um, and so these local craftsmen began to not be able to compete in the marketplace anymore. Okay. So they, um, in some ways, were reactionary because they wanted to go backwards. But as they became more unable to be part of that class, they entered into the proletariat. And became okay, maybe the middle managers of sorts as well, if they had an apprentice hanging around or they had apprenticed, so they got some experience. They're more of the yeah, foreman. Exactly, exactly. So basically, during this whole time, you're seeing, although there were... It, the uh, although it destroyed a lot of property relations and the old feudal obligations um it created brand new ones that made it so that you were no longer really in control of your work um and you were subject to the whims of the market and to the own ownership class and so that's where a lot of that foment uh the fomented rebellion and revolutionary attitudes came about was was from those social forces all right yeah and then uh, the move to the city was probably uh, not the most luxurious uh, as we think it today. So you got some squalor going on from people who were probably living in squalor in the suburbs, but at least it was, was their squalor. It wasn't like a slum crime, you know? And so you're getting all that, you're getting the disease. Uh, it just, it multiplies itself. Yeah. And, and that is one of the main reasons why Marx considered the proletariat to be the revolutionary class, which we can go into a little bit more detail, but basically he's saying, you know, the peasants, even though they are maybe the most exploited of everyone or the most, you know, live the most uh, Spartan existence, um, they can't really be a revolutionary class because they don't live in the same. They, they live spread out from each other. They don't work side by side. together. They don't live side by side together. Whereas the, the beginning of capitalism, that was exactly what was happening. All the workers were living in essentially these massive bunkhouses and squalid conditions in the inner cities of Manchester and London and Berlin. Um, and at the same time, um, they were working together side by side. So they were able to essentially compare notes and be That's like, right. hey, yeah, like, this are you getting screwed? Like, I'm getting screwed. <laughs> and they're all yeah. like, yeah, we are all getting screwed. Um, whereas the peasants don't really have that sort of didn't really have that sort of uh situation i guess the the countryside peasants is what you're saying the countryside peasants. yeah yeah, yeah. i mean plus you know means of transportation not what they were horse and buggy probably not for a peasant but you know whatever and yeah. so okay close proximity uh you know uh, challenging living conditions if not inhumane yeah uh, i mean at the beginning you were working in the early decades of capitalism there's 18 hour days at least of work and in, you know, unimaginable working conditions, children and women being forced into the workplace. I, I, I remember reading that at uh, the beginning of, of capitalism starting, many of those craftsmen just decided to starve to death rather than be subject to the market. Um, and so that's why in many ways, women and children were brought in at the very beginning of capitalism to work in the factories, not just because they had smaller fingers to work the looms, uh, but because the men who had lived for so many generations in their own mode of production basically weren't willing to swallow their pride. Just well, if you've seen Zoolander, you know that uh, the garment industry is a merciless, uh, uh, a merciless one. Yeah. I want to swear yeah, on, the, on air here, but you know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> yes. She, no mercy. Um, okay. No doubt about it. So, uh, at that time, it was th this is all the factors that are leading up to the rise of communism, the revolutions of 1848. And in the revolutions of 1848, you sort of have two angles. The bourgeoisie at that time are interested in revolution because they want to get rid of the old conservative powers uh, and political absolutism. They want to extend political rights to everybody. Um, and what would happen, whereas the proletariat were just hungry. And they wanted food and a change in their relationship to the market. Um, they didn't really care about voting so long as they were, their bellies were full with bread. What ended up happening in the revolutions of 1848 is those two forces allied together, as Marx recommended they should in the Communist Manifesto and other places, uh, to defeat or to attempt to defeat the old conservative powers of Europe. And they did at the very beginning. 
Uh, it was very within, I think, 10 days, some of the most conservative, like Gizo and Metternich, which he mentions in that passage I read out earlier, had been deposed within the first 10 days of the revolution. Afterwards, however, the bourgeois uh, political leaders who had allied with the proletariat, while the proletariat manned the barricades and the bourgeoisie, uh, you know, gave the political leadership um, after the revolution was quote unquote won, when the uh, proletariat was like, oh, well, so now we're, you're going to give us more food and money and freedom, right? And the bourgeoisie was like, whoa, 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 we didn't say, we didn't say anything about changing the social system. We just said we're going to change the political system. Um, so and- you had a lot of, so to boil that down, you had a lot of monarchs fall and the folks that are in the proletariat class from ex guild, you know, for factory foreman to the folks who showed up five to 10 years ago from the countryside who sort of, you know, managed to stick around and survive are stoked up, participated in the revolutions are now ready for a little bit more kickback, you know, a better life. And yeah. it's same old verse, uh, same old basically, song, different verse. Basically the bourgeoisie was like, yes, we did it. And the proletariat was like, yes, we're just getting started. Um, and that was the essential conflict. So within months, you had the civic guard of the bourgeoisie, the educated classes, shooting the proletariat in the streets um, because they were now rebelling against the bourgeoisie. Okay, and that's and now you get the seeds of you know a communism there. So okay, so yeah, and, that's, and, and, and at that time, you know, communism wasn't that well known by the working population. It was just a growing workers' movement. Now, all that said, I think that's plenty of background. I say we should get into the meat of it. What he says. Yeah. All right. So, um, you know what, how do we structure this? Uh, there's a, we could, we could address every point and I, I don't think we're going to let's address the most uh, relevant one. So I've read this thing again, Cyrus has read it again. We've chopped it up a little bit, tried to disagree, um, and, and get some of those disagreements out of the way to, to, to focus on what we think is the most salient. Um, Cyrus, is there, you know, a few points that you uh, think that are most um, impactful or worth repeating out of the first part of the manifesto? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, from my perspective, I think, and I think a lot of people would be surprised if they read the manifesto to see that the whole basically first chapter, more or less, of the bourgeoisie is, is celebrating the bourgeoisie in many respects, or at least uh, giving it some uh, admir- admiration and respect for what it's done. Uh, he starts and off- And that's throwing off the monarchs or leading the charge. Yeah, I mean, he basically he says they're the, one of the most revolutionary uh, forces in, in history. Uh, I'll, I'll get that to, to that well, in one well, second. So but just to make it like a very American, you know, uh, experience, maybe 100 years earlier, um, when Washington, Jefferson, Hamilton, Madison and the like want a revolution on, they get a revolution on. Um, so, you know, being sort of in the bourgeoisie class, they've got wealth, they've got a little bit of land. When they want to lead a charge against a monarch, they can freaking do it. Yeah, well, exactly. They, they were the ones, and that's why in the conception of Marxism, the bourgeois revolution, as Marx thought of it, should come before the proletariat revolution. Because you need to get the political rights first, extend democracy to people, and then once democracy is actually extended to people, then the proletariat can use that in order to achieve their own revolution. Okay, and that's where the sort of the seeds of this, like capitalism has to come first. I've heard this, you know, a few times before socialism or communism. And it's within that vein. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I think that's, you know, that brings us to the very first line after the intro, which is the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Yeah, um, let's pause there. So, I mean, that's it's it, so is uh, why is that true for you? And does that statement set up everything for the rest of the, the what he's about to say? And if I disagree with that statement, do I disagree with everything he's about to say? Not necessarily. No, I, I, although I would say that it is definitely a different way of looking at the world than, you know, the traditional history we're taught, which is individuals uh, in, you know, their various times and places um, acting upon the world, shaping it in their image. Yeah, the great man, uh, you know, hypothesis or theory, like, you know, it's, it's shaped by the Genghis Khans and the Alexander the Greats of the world, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, now, this isn't from the Communist Manifesto, but I think it's really relevant to what you just said, which is a Marx quote that says, 
men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. Um, now, what that essentially means in the terms of this, this class conflict that he's talking about is that throughout history, there's always been an, an oppressor class and an oppressed class. Uh, you know, from the ancient and slave modes of production, you know, during the, that reached its height during the Greek and Roman empires, um, that was, had its relationship of the patrician and the plebeian and the slave. Uh, in the feudal system, there were the lord, the king, the lord, and the serf. Uh, now he's saying in the age of capitalism, it will gradually only make it to just two that really have any, you know, impact on the political system or on the way things are organized. And that's the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Now you can uh, disagree that the history of all uh, society is the history of class struggle, but I think he makes a lot of good points. And I'll just use the, the bourgeoisie example that he gives as uh, sort of an example of, of how that manifests itself. It was a little bit of a long quote, so bear with me. The bourgeoisie historically have played a most revolutionary part. The bourgeoisie, wherever it has got the upper hand, has put an end to all feudal, patriarchal, idyllic relations. It has pitilessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors and has left remaining no other nexus between man and man than naked self-interest, than callous cash payment. It has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of Philistine sentimentalism in the icy water of egotistical calculation. It has resolved personal worth into exchange value and in place of the numberless indefeasible charted freedoms has set up that single unconscionable freedom, free trade. In one word for exploitation, exploitation veiled by religious and political illusions, it has substituted naked, shameless, direct, brutal exploitation. The bourgeoisie has stripped of its halo every occupation hitherto honored and looked up to with reverent awe. It has converted the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, the man of science into its paid wage laborers. The bourgeoisie has torn away from the family its sentimental veil and has reduced the family relation to a mere money relation. The bourgeoisie has disclosed how it came to pass that the brutal display of vigor in the Middle Ages, which reactionaries so much admire, found its fitting complement in the most slothful indolence. It has been the first to show what man's activity can bring about. It has accomplished wonders far surpassing Egyptian pyramids, Roman aqueducts, and Gothic cathedrals. It has conducted expeditions that put in the shade all former exoduses of nations and crusades. So what is he saying there? Essentially, he's saying is the bourgeoisie is one of the most revolutionary forces in all of human history, if not the most, with the minor exception maybe of the Neolithic revolution where we started to you know, really use tools and that sort of thing. Um, but otherwise, he's saying it has th this conflict between the old masters of Europe, the kings, the nobles, and the bourgeoisie was resolved by the bourgeoisie uh, throwing off the yoke of absolute monarchism and entering into their own uh, role as the oppressor class, essentially. Um, from that, uh, three things. One, Marx is celebrating the bourgeoisie, or the bourgeoisie, but he's also celebrating, I think, some of the elemental uh, impacts of capitalism, like the irrigation of a continent and some of the things that they're able to do through um, industrial manufacturing. Is that at least the case in transition mode? Is, is he doing that? Yeah, absolutely. In the Marxist conception of history, even though he's extremely critical of capitalism, like he's extremely critical of everything in a lot of ways. Um, but in the Marxist conception of history, capitalism needs to come before socialism. Um, capitalism is the thing, is the engine that will be able to provide the technology and resources um, and accumulation of things, of, of, of productive capacity that will allow socialism to really exist in a in a better way okay so piecing together some of our previous conversations too so marx and and, and all communists in theory then aren't anti-capitalists they're at the very least like celebrating capitalism for for literally what i would argue it has done helped bring us out of the middle ages and and created mass a mass circulation of wealth and goods and things and you're telling me yep that's part of the plan yeah, that yeah, that is that is part of the plan. Uh, although I wouldn't go so far as to say that most communists celebrate capitalism, 
I think they recognize its importance to the overall uh, timeline. And what the, where the criticism comes in is, well, now we have that productive capacity. We've, we've arrived there. We have, we have the resources and the labor and the materials and the industry and the technology to be able to, to take care of pretty much everyone on the whole planet. Um, but we don't. And instead, we keep things concentrated in the hands of a very few. Um, so, yeah, that is that is sort of where the break happens between Marx's respective capitalism and it's and his his criticism of it. OK. Um, and I want to get back to class struggle in a second. But the other thing I want to address, though, in that quote you read was how it um, has basically stripped the artisan, the lawyer, the, the, the priest uh, of their morality and it basically exchanged sort of the nobleness of what they did, the clockmaker for, you know, making and selling clocks for the essence of it, for he's only doing it for a profit. Um, I understand that to be right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is exactly it. That it, it both, it strips both parties of the, uh, of the most human thing to, to, to Marx, which is our, we make our own survival. Other animals do not in a lot of ways. Uh, the, the, the unique thing about humans is that we produce the means for our own survival, be it a house or a livestock or agriculture. Um, other animals don't do that. We do. We can plant. Okay, so I guess what I'm saying is I don't, I don't necessarily buy it just because it's not necessarily true in practice. Maybe, you know, again, from his perspective, seeing the mass migration of people from the countryside who were in tight, close-knit families, seeing, you know, the forced in, um, introduction of women and children into sweatshops that were pretty grueling. Um, I can see him being like, wow, this is like cold, naked cash. That's it. But like, think of the lawyer today or the doctor today. Like people go into, you know, to become a doctor because they want to make money, but they do it to help people. And they had, there's, you know, there's a psychological, uh, moral, I don't want to use the word salary, but like there, there are benefits to that. You know what I'm saying? And, um, so what, so if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that lawyers join the legal profession because they want to help people. No, but I'm saying like (laughs) doctors, no, sometimes lawyers like defense attorneys and other things else, like people don't become teachers for the economic value, right? They become teachers because they want to make an impact in people's life. And so, um, the same reason I'm, you know, thinking through a freaking, you know, career change or whatever else is because like, okay, like, do I want to have a different impact? So I just, again, from his perspective, I can see how he's like, man, this is evil, but yeah. in practice and particularly in our culture, it's, it's not a cold naked exploitation. In fact, I think a lot of people forego profit or earning potential to do something that they, um, enjoy more, or they feel is like a, a better, instance so i would just say like again from his perspective i get it but in practice today it's not necessarily like profit equals exploitation and manipulation like it's just i I just i'm just not buying it at least not yet yeah well i mean i think that's that there there are some points in there uh and we can get to that a little bit later about my opinion about a lot of those good things that we have uh, and the reason people can afford to do things like you know, become a public school teacher or, or other uh, professions is because for a long time we had a social safety net in this country. And we talk about the reasons for that at the end, but let's keep going. I don't want to get us bogged down. There. And so the last thing was the class struggle, right? I just don't want to pass that up because that was um, a founding assumption, not necessarily critical to it, but, but central and nonetheless. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I'm thinking from whether that be on a country to country, you know, Athens and every other satellite state that are, you know, with us or against them. Um, I think, and, and largely that, you know, know, whether it be Egyptian or Chinese or whatever, like, I think that largely checks out. There's been a ruling class or a series of ruling classes and classes that serve them. I, so, so I don't disagree. And I know that was pretty revolutionary when he said that. I just think though, that's missing uh, the the overarching under underpinning even of it is like the the personal spiritual component of it right I, I think uh, again from my perspective the the struggle between man and, and sin and man and the separation of man and God is something that drives them like right you you might say it's it's class struggle and the way we've structured society that pits man against each other I would say yeah maybe. Um, but also, and that, that would happen no matter what social structure we had, because we all have a sin problem and because we all are, you know, are, are separated from God. 
and we need that uh, God connection. We need the God in our life. And so uh, just like Jesus said, out of the heart, you know, all, or, or from all the evils. And so I'm, I'm paraphrasing, right? Whether it be lust, greed, whatever. And so I just think that all of history is also marked by the struggle of man and sin, which is basically the rebellion against God. No, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree in a sense. And I don't even think Marx would either. Um, what I would say, though, is I think one of the reasons why Europe is the most, one of the most secular places in the entire world is because that's the genesis of capitalism. And, and one of the things that Marx laments, as I read in that last passage, I'll, I'll just reheat it again. It is drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of Philistine sentimentalism in the icy water of egotistical calculation. He is, he is the one who's saying, look at what capitalism is doing to the social relations that have bound us together. Uh, things like religion, things like the moral connections that we have to our communities through religion or through commonality. He's saying it's getting rid of all that and replacing it with contracts, basically. Yeah, or contracts or the, you know, a profit motive, like whether I, um, you know, it doesn't help me as a lawyer in at least the short term to not charge somebody for legal counsel. Um, and so, you know, maybe I charge people for legal counsel when, you know, what um, I might I otherwise give them free advice because they're a neighbor and I'm trying to build up the bonds of my community and love people as a neighbor. So exactly. So that, that is the, the beginning of it. And then as you bring it up to today, now you have the, you know, paradoxes like, Oh, well, it's interesting that we have pharmaceutical companies that are in charge of healing us and making the medications that treat cancer are also the ones we're entrusting to cure cancer. And isn't that a little bit of a conflict of interest? Because if they cure cancer, well, then they can't sell, uh, they can't sell treatment anymore. There's no more chemo. There's no more uh, pain medication for, for that. No more nausea medication. Lose on a lot of streams of revenue. And so essentially that same instinct that you just described with the lawyer is now what op operates under the most powerful companies in the world. Um, at that time, that wasn't the case. One thing I sort of neglected to mention in the background is that capitalism in this period was still very weak. Uh, it was new. It only existed in four or five countries, uh, more or less, uh, and was really just just beginning to be, you know, to come into its, its full form. So that said, before we uh, get into my last couple points about the bourgeoisie and move into uh, the revolutionary class, uh, anything else you, you, uh, want to pick apart or, uh, you know, take a, take a look. Yeah. At? So, so far I've I definitely said, like, I, I don't think it's capitalism is a strict stripping of morality in favor of exploitation, particularly evidenced by our practice today. I do think that there's other things going on besides class struggle. So the solution isn't completely class reformation. Um, I also think if I had to, you know, categorize it into three, um, issues with what I read in the first part of the, the manifesto. I think the second one is um, his conclusions of capitalism, which I think are premature, of his conclusions that it doesn't provide any means of social mobility. He literally says, he compares other previous systems, and maybe you can fill those systems in, saying like, hey, well, back then, uh, at least a serf could like work themselves up to be you know, uh, in the next social ring. But he, he concluded capitalism to be sort of trapping and I think it had, you know, capitalism isn't perfect, but again, American capitalism or, or, you know, last 50 years has seemed to provide a lot of social mobility, right? Um, you, I mean, we have maybe enshrined the exceptional cases of immigrants coming over, working hard, having a good idea, and then becoming like, you know, uh, empires or whatever else, like uh, Carnegie is, a, you know, one of the quintessential. Right, right, right. And even today with, the, with, with the tech inventions and new industries, it's, it makes it seem like, like, wait a second, we can, uh, like our personal family who has transcended lower class, up, lower middle, middle, even upper middle class now, um, if I had to, you know, quintile it out. And you also have these stories of rags to riches. So I just think his conclusions are premature. Trying to say. No, and, and I think, uh, he would probably agree with you because he went on to live another 45 or so years um, and, and develop these theories much, much more uh, vigorously, I would say. Um, now that said, it's interesting. You, you kind of bring up that golden age of American capitalism, because I think a lot of the things you talk about that are, uh, you know, the bright spots, you know, that, that, 
you know, 50 year or 40 or so year post-war period after World War II, where it was most people bought a house, uh, could afford to, to house their families, could uh, had a, you know, maybe 40 hour a week job that provided them a car in the garage and food on the table every night. Um, and that was in large part due to communism. Uh, I think that that was in a lot of ways. Well, don't overstate your case now. What do you mean? <laughs> well, what I'll say is uh, Marx, a lot of uh, his theories were predicated on a great capitalist crisis coming into being. Um, and that great capitalist crisis did come into being. I mean, I think, you know, sort of in World War One was a big lead up to it. And then it reached its culmination in the Great Depression and the uh, ramifications of the Great Depression, which were World War Two. Um, that at that time, uh, there were much fewer rights for workers, but there was a much more robust, uh, workers movement that was growing in ambition and in power. So, and, and, and had communist, uh, communist or socialist orientations. Um, so when the crisis of the great depression came, at least in America, it wasn't a matter of capitalists saying, oh, we need to reform things. This is, this is how it's got to be. We, we need to save capitalism. It was the uh, trade unions coming, uh, coming to the table with negotiating and saying, if we don't get something, then you're going to get revolution in this country. Okay. Um, so you're saying basically the big capitalist catastrophe happened in that of the Great Depression and the golden age of American, what we consider capitalism is that, but what the story not really told is we made massive concessions to labor in order to ward off communism um, and, you know, the sort of the Soviet shadow there. So we had many more worker rights, much more worker organization and uh, collective power in workers. And that sort of um, partnership is something that like w was, w was really like the, the one, two punch and it wasn't just cold American capitalism. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, like yeah, absolutely. The, the golden age of American capitalism was inter interestingly enough the most socialist time in America's history in terms of the way we actually govern. You have massive public investment in our infrastructure, massive job programs. Uh, I mean, you, you had the GI Bill, a lot of veterans coming back. You had like you know, I don't know about the housing situation, but free public education, public. VA loans, like you said, all those GI, GIs coming back. You have, uh, you know, investment in art, actual government, real government investment in art and public works. Um, stuff that, you know, is not even up for consideration anymore in the halls of Congress. Uh, it was economic policy and the way the econo actual economic actions that would affect people's daily life were up for debate every day. Uh, and that has changed. And I think as it's changed and as the power of trade unions has been essentially decimated since the 1970s um, and the power of workers in general to consolidate and collectively bargain has been greatly diminished. You're starting to see all those things being rolled back and more austerity coming in. And more you know, I would actually, while I disagree with you and, and, and maybe some foundations here for sure, I do think that that's actually probably somewhat accurate in the sense of we just had the Great Recession. And if you were expecting something on the level of a Great Depression uh, type program, I mean, we got cash for clunkers and we got some other things uh, for <laughs> right. the, the proletariat workers or this lower middle class where yeah. a lot of you know, banks were subsidized and, or, 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 or secured. And we didn't see, I mean, shoot, we don't even have free public Wi-Fi. That would have been something that we could have structurally invested in for the benefit of it. And I think that's where like a lot of, I mean, that was the origin of the Tea Party and Occupy Party of like, wait a second, like there's a lot of people getting away with a lot right now. And whether or not we've, you know, put people in jail for, you know, doing what was like, you know, in their interest because they thought the government would bail them out. It didn't come with a, um, any kind of equal support for the lower middle classes. And because of that, you know, folks getting out of college or less earning power, less home ownership, less debt or more debt. And so I, I think that's really interesting that you say all that. And then on the back of that, like we have, you know, a, a reinvigorated, maybe more stronger than the last 50 years socialist party in America. And so I just think it's really interesting as, as I'm talking to other Christians who think like, wow, you know, being a Christian and a socialist is an oxymoron. 
and we've interviewed many Christian socialists, Joel and Russ, and we, we've, and I, as I've gotten to understand the socialist movement more, speaking through you and some of the other folks, um, you know, I really believe that unless we have an enlightened, humbled capitalism, we are begging for secular socialism to come in. And if we don't you know, really start to maybe exercise more of our faith in that way, then we're going to get more of what we fear. And that's, we can, we can solve the problem by, um, I guess, looking to history and or loving people more. Um, I, I, yeah, I think there's something, there's something here, Cyrus, that when like we adhere to like Hoover, right after um, World War II, not World War II, the Great Depression, didn't want to uh, react in a Keynesian way. He didn't want to take control, lay out social safety nets. Um, and so he was ejected and the economy got worse. I think maybe in a lot of the same way as we like hold tight with our cold dead fingertips on naked free market policies and, um, and don't look at some of the things that help a lot of people, um, then we're, you know, conservatives and people who like a lot of American values, like hard work and opportunity or whatever else, like we're, we're, we're hurting ourselves. We should be looking at some of these programs that maybe socialists might even be for, um, because it actually helps people transcend class. It gives people the, op- the right to, you know, or, or the opportunity for an education, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that we, you know, our orientation to the economic structures would be basically exact same as they were in the 1920s. And we just uh, haven't really learned from history on that one. But that is, you know, that, that's a great point. And I think what Marx would say to that and what he does say to that is, is this quote right here, which I think is, is really good. Modern bourgeois society with its relations of production, of exchange and of property, a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and of exchange is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells. Uh, I think that's, you know, obviously, aside from being pretty vivid imagery, I think is very true. Um, Individual capitalists have become so fixated on their own individual profit that they no longer have uh, the ability to to think rationally. Um, it, it, like, for instance, like the economic systems that that uh, that we live under work best when they are the market is at least regulated by a government in some way um, that there has to be some sort of facilitation of things like currency and uh, things like uh public works like the highway system and airports and all these things without that base capitalism is just basically anarchy which is the one ironic because that's what they say they fear the most um yeah well you know what i would say living in the small town so i live in grapevine texas and we have a phenomenal mayor and and uh, city council like second lowest tax rates in texas you know, just amazing growth, great feeling. And it's really fascinating that, dude, we have exceptional public service. Like they set really high standards and they really recruit, you know, intentionally. And our guard, like they'll pick up anything outside of your house, washing machine, tree branches. Like we have great public service, uh, yeah, public utilities and services um, because that's the way like they've set it up. So I think, again, like on local level, I'm saying like, wow, like you know, a municipal government can get a lot with a little if it, if the leadership is there, if they set it up, right, I have less faith on, you know, a, a grander scale, but, um, I guess I'm yeah, mentioning the resources all that to say are, that are like, pooled in the right pools. right. Like I, I, you know, someone might say, Oh yeah, we need a privatized trash collection for instance. I'm like, well, I don't pay very much for like crazy good service because there's one provider of it. And because everyone, you know, has to pay in. It's just very rare that that one single service is that great. You know, especially if it's like encased in a government a bureaucracy. No, exactly. Yeah, I was driving through, uh, you know, part of this uh, older part of Boise. Do you remember Hill Road here in Boise? Yeah, right. Well, now, because there's been so much development in the area, it's there's a bunch of signs. I went on a bike ride the other day and it says, you know, stuff like save old Hill Road, protect the bees and the cows and the plants, you know, protect this sort of pastoral scene. And it's 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 you're literally witnessing the beginning of uh capitalism still rippling out you know into the very future into those last little crevices where it can you know get its little grimy fingers um because there i'm sure there are tons of real estate developers looking to buy all those farms and pastures and turn them into houses 
Um, well, and that, and that, that, that's one thing if I've got to give Mark's credit here is that like, it seems like he comes in on the scene of capitalism a lot like when the first computer was ever built and it fit in like a, a you know, a giant room. And he's the guy that says it's going to take over the globe and it's going to get everywhere. It's almost like him saying it's going to be in every house. It's going to be in every person's hand. And that's just at that time was like, everybody's going to have a computer in their pocket someday when he's looking at a giant wall of blinking lights. Yeah, and people are like, dude, get out of here. What, 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 what are you doing? And so exactly. I give him the, the credit for the insight and the foresight of realizing the power of this. And I, I think that even just for that reason, I'm a little bit more interested in what he's saying because he seems to have a, you know, a keen eye of observation on history and the projection of it forward. And I think, he, yeah. in, fa- in fact, he's got a point in that um, if with, with cold naked capitalism, right? Like with the quintessential industrial England, uh, you know, black soot factories, men and women and children alike in you know, 18 hour days. Yeah, like no one wants that system. That system's terrible. It's, it's slavery. Yeah. Right. Well, that's exactly why you see, you know, today, like communists or uh, devout communists who like don't support Bernie Sanders and act, actually actively want him to lose or wanted him to lose. Um, and that's because they see that as like, oh, well, these reforms are just like half measures that are going to keep the people in power and power longer. Like they need to see the real face of capitalism. And I don't necessarily subscribe to that ideology. I definitely don't, actually. But that that is well, sort of mentality you know back to that um you know our golden age if you will uh when productive powers work together and there there's you know everyone's on the same page of okay people are getting paid a little bit more they have a social safety net they have you know uh, they can go to their job without fear of being fired for no reason that sort of thing and you have profit incentive you know oh by the way with a moral base of people who like don't want to absolutely screw each other because it's immoral and unethical it's a pretty powerful combination of social forces. And so yeah. I, I do think um, it's, it's a big reason why I'm, I'm doing these conversations with you, Cyrus, for my own exploration, but also to, to sort of ring the bell for other Christians who think, oh boy, we need to get back to the you know, good old days. Well, like, you know, we need to take care of people and love them. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in many ways, Marx is a, a historian, sort of first and foremost. I mean, he's a political political economist and a social scientist but he's also a historian and whether you agree or disagree with uh you know his his recommendations it's very hard to agree with or to disagree with uh the way he characterizes history i think and i think it it bears out often just the way he says it did um now that said we haven't even touched well we have touched the proletariat but i want to get into a little bit more let's start i want to start bringing this home a little bit so the proletarian I'll read one quick quote that I think, uh, you know, sets the scene for him. Not only has the bourgeoisie forged the weapons that bring death to itself, it has also called into existence the men who are to wield those weapons, the modern working class, the proletarians. Uh, Proletarians, the proletariat class is essentially characterized by a couple of, you know, pretty things, things that I think we recognize today. Uh, The fact that they can only live if they can find work um, uh, in uh, you know, be compelled to use their labor to, uh, or to sell their labor. Uh, so turning themselves and their time into a commodity sold on the market. So basically the modern day version is if you need to work to support, to, to feed you and your family or to pay your debts, you're in the parole. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you're only in the bourgeoisie in modern day. If you got so much freaking money, house is paid off and you could essentially not work another day in your life and be, and be good. Yeah. If, you, if you're working for a salary or a wage, you're in the proletariat now things are at least yeah yeah exactly yeah things are a little bit more complicated today and we you know that's maybe a conversation for another time uh but yeah you're largely right and the bourgeoisie is made up of people who can live off of passive income uh from ownership of their assets be it houses factories real estate whatever um so yeah, that says, and uh, also, you know, another another little wrinkle he throws in here, which I thought was uh, such an interesting insight, is the worse the job is, the less it pays. Um, you know, your your digital. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, that's true. 
um, but not always, right? Like the more physical jobs, typically the, the less it pays, but then we could bring in this whole supply demand thing of like, well, there's everyone can do a physical job or, or darn near where not everyone can critically think and solve abstract problems, you know, in, uh, you know, or n- not everyone can you know, probably more accurately solve complex legal matters or dissect a brain. So therefore right. we pay more people or we, you know, we pay that cause there's a demand for that special skill. Yeah. And I think Marx and most communists would say, well, well, that doesn't seem very fair just because a person is born smarter with better critical thinking skills, they should be automatically blessed with a better life. Whereas those people don't actually have to do the physical labor that keeps things moving. Anyways, yeah. don't want to get off track. Yeah, boy, I'm about to say, cause you know, there's, there's work in there. There is like, you know, not forced outcomes. Some people are smarter or stronger, you yeah. know, than others. And anyway, no, no, no doubt. The world will never be, never be fair, but we can try to make it just. Anyways, um, so basically, I'll just quickly move through the way he thinks this will play out. Um, the, that as the bourgeoisie grow in power, they require, you know, the hands and feet of the proletariat to clear away those remnants of the old feudal order. Because while the bourgeoisie have the education and the access and the funds, they don't have the numbers. Um, so that's where he sort of says that they, you know, sow the seeds for their own eventual destruction, because in order to have the working class help them, they need to give them some political rights. Uh, they need to bring them into their economic system in those factories, as I talked before, which is where that revolutionary consciousness develops. Um, and so those uh, sort of factors combine in, in this eventuality, as he calls it, I mean, or not, not as he calls it. In the Communist Manifesto, he says it will happen, but I sort of look at that as being more aspirational than what he actually believed, you know, sort of like a hyping up the crowd. Um, But what he says is all previous historical movements were movements of minorities or in the interests of minorities. The proletarian movement is the self-conscious, independent movement of the immense majority in the interest of the immense majority. The proletariat, the lowest stratum of our present society, cannot stir, cannot raise itself up without the whole superincumbent strata of official society being sprung up into the air. Okay. So, so I, I see what he's saying there. Um, the majority of people are workers and not the owners and, or the creators and the innovators. A lot of people just want to work a job and feed their family and, you know, and have a life and, and whatever else. Um, so I, I get that. I guess I'm from all this. I'm I'm reminded and, and, and re-encouraged and you just, you know, newly focused on this idea that um, when when people are getting paid enough, when they have access to mobility, if they want that mobility and then you also let people produce and you and you don't force you know community ownership on the producers or the bourgeoisie who I don't want to say the bourgeoisie or really the, the innovators, the true thought leaders, um, so long as we can let that flourish then yeah, I think we need to, you know, obviously set up a system where we can take care of people. So, um, okay. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. So that's sort of how he views the final sort of arc of history. And then eventually that transitions into socialism and uh, someday communism, the final form of human consciousness. And he ends up sort of wrapping that up and, and saying this revolution has to happen. Uh, for for various reasons, and I'll, I'll quote him again quickly. Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guild master and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. So basically what he's saying there is that in all of those previous epochs and all of those previous class struggles, things ended one of two ways. In a full revolutionary reconstitution of society, uh, and there I'm thinking of something like capitalism, political rights, uh, economic uh, freedom, so to speak, uh, property rights, brand new, everything is different now. Uh, or it could be the common ruin of the t- contending classes. And in that, he points to something like the fall of the Roman Empire, where the contradictions within the Roman mode of production, the ancient mode of production, uh, specifically I'm talking about between masters and slaves, uh, the contradictions were never able to be uh, fully resolved because uh, they could only expand so far. They could only get so many slaves. 
eventually they had to uh, relinquish some of the control and things fell into a much more localized and in a lot of ways backwards uh, mode of production, the feudal mode. Uh, so now we're faced with the same situation, uh, I believe, and I think Marx would say so, and I think most Marxists would say so, which is that uh, we, uh, we are faced with, if we don't have some sort of revolutionary reconstitution of society in some way, and who, I'm no expert, I'm no genius. I don't know if Marxism or communism is 100% the exact way that it needs to be revolutionary reconstituted into. I believe that. Um, now that said, the alternative is the common ruin of the contending classes. And we see that in things like nuclear war, in environmental disaster, most recently in viral pandemics. And the reason that he thinks especially capitalism will end that way if there's not a revolutionary reconstitution is because the weapons of technology that we've been able to create in a competitive framework will eventually assuredly lead to our destruction. If competition is the watchword of everything we do, uh, then eventually when you have the tools of your own destruction, things like nuclear bombs or, uh, you know, uh, a massive petroleum industry or a or intellectual property patents where you don't want to share your vaccine information or your viral information those things will eventually be our full and total undoing and and that's why i think you know sort of a watchword in, in uh, socialism today is socialism or barbarism those are the choices we're faced with um now there's there's room in there and I, i'm sure there's a lot of disagreement um but that is that is essentially his his main claim of the Communist Manifesto is that capitalism is both extremely powerful and totally irrational. And for that reason, it can't be allowed to go on unfettered. Well, I would agree with the extremely powerful and left of all morality and, you know, community bonds and or a common good. Yeah, then it's ultimately going to be like a slave class, sort of like it was in the worst situations in early England uh, with capitalism and industrialism. Um, but that's, you know, I think a big reason why Christians particularly think that they need to have um, an impact on society and need to, um, whether you believe in voting or not, like really have an impact on reaching other people for Jesus and that sort of thing. Um, just because that, that trans is supposed to transform the individual and you all of a sudden have a greater, gain a greater consciousness of, wait a second, it's not just about me and my prophet. Um, well, it's not even just about me. It's not about me or my prophet. It's about Jesus and other people. So I, I see, I think that there's certainly uh, absent any morality, any ethics, any faith. Um, capitalism is, is good for the hungry and the ambitious and puts probably to the knife the people who um, aren't. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it strives to make you less reliant on your faith and make you reliant on its structures you know i think now you're seeing a lot of what he's saying played out and and what i mean is you know things like social media the gig economy you're seeing a gradual reinsurfing of of america a re-peasantization in a lot of ways where people are you know like how many people could operate in the world without the uh technological feudal system that we sort of have where you have all of these uh, apps or social media or every single part of your life is dictated by essentially these tech companies or is certainly largely influenced by them. And if that doesn't stop soon, they're only going to, you know, like I said, stick their grimy little fingers. And well, I, I, I don't know, man, like, I, I, again, I, I'm hesitant to put a moral a judgment on any kind of system, right? Whether it's a, a monarchy or it's a capitalism or, or a socialism, you could maybe talk about the propensity of good and bad in each one of them, but inherently it's not like an actor, it's a system. And therefore, um, while a tyranny is very likely bad, right? You could also have a philosopher king that's the tyrant and that's just, and you know, it's good for everybody. Um, so, so that's a social structure that is very like 99% bad, but it could be good. And therefore I don't think, I don't want to say capitalism is, it's good or bad. I think it's like, we've certainly used it for um, a lot of good and we've used it for a lot of bad. Um, but I also don't think like socialism is going to change the nature of social media and people's like, you know, heart desires for fame or for, 
you know, greed or, or lust or at all like that. So again, that's, I think sort of underscores the point that, you know, as we're wrapping this up, that um, we need to be mindful of our social structure and how we relate to other people. Uh, but we've also got to really understand the individual and, you know, and, 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 and seek to pursue the individual heart. Well, and I think in, in some ways, Marx would agree with that, but also say that, you know, why, why do people lust after fame and recognition and validation on things like social media? Why is that? And my theory, my pet theory is uh, because of the, profit to be gained. No, I think it's a, a, an aloneness and an alienation from our fellow humans. You know, if you have love and validation and relationships that are fulfilling in your actual life, you're not really going to be seeking that validation and love and fulfillment from strangers online. You know, if it, there's, a, I'm going to read this Giannis Varoufakis quote, maybe to sort of wrap us up, right. but I think it's really good because one of the key tenets of Marxism, like you're saying is it is a system and it's not individual actors. And what Marx says is that it capitalism enslaves the rich in the same way it enslaves the poor and takes away their agency in a lot of ways. Because, I mean, we've talked about it before, but the uh, compulsion to profit is a big part of that. Um, but as that grows, you know, he says that the bourgeoisie will become unfit to rule. And I'll, I'll do this Varoufakis quote sort of to finish this off. But the ultra rich are an insecure, permanently disgruntled clique, constantly in and out of detox clinics, relentlessly seeking solace from psychics, shrinks and entrepreneurial gurus. Meanwhile, everyone else struggles to put food on the table, pay tuition fees, juggle one credit card for another, or fight depression. We act as if our lives are carefree, claiming to like what we do and do what we like. Yet, in reality, we cry ourselves to sleep. Um, and that's pretty dramatic, but I think it's it's largely true. I well, mean, I think I don't think we think I of to... our ruling elite as being particularly well adjusted or in touch or even you know like. Why are they going to all these? Well, no, and that's why. Yeah, we've got stats out there that say, you know, some of our most wealthy, um, you know, areas, counties, whatever, have some of the highest rates of, you know, either, uh, you know, depression or whatever it is. Um, And and I guess what that quote really tells me is, yeah, like money's not going to solve your problems. And therefore, though, I think the redistribution of money ain't going to solve your problems. Money's not going to solve your problems. You know, I, I mean? think like, I think though it's rich, not about, about the problems. money. It's about the, the what the money and the difference in the amount of wealth that you have and your relationship to the people who have less than you is alienating. And I think that the surest way to solve things like depression and anxiety and antisocial behavior is is to reinstitute communities in our societies in a real way that actually includes people in their daily life. Then, yeah, you, I think you will, you will uh, have a lot less depression. I, I don't, I agree. It's not about the money, but it's about what the money does to you, well, which is the more money you have and the further you're separated from the rest of humanity, the more uh, <laughs> gradually, literally insane you're going to be, the more yeah, I mean, stick I, I, in the head you're going to get. I think in, in a sense that, I mean, there are certainly rich people that, or even, you know, what middle-class people that seem to not be ruled by their money they don't worship it they don't get a sense of identity or validation or deep sense of joy from it it's you know another it's a blessing that they might have to use or whatever else um i do understand the propensity though of being super wealthy and thinking like you know the car door should be open for you and when it's not your mood gets upset like yeah that seems to be like a warp um of entitlement right again i would just say it's um there are Bible studies out there that um, I'm a part of that lovingly support each other. And there is a sense of community going on there. It's certainly not perfect, but you know, that's also something that, um, that I think just because of man, the hypocrisy and the, on the individual and institutional level, man, friggin' uh, Christians writ large have thrown a lot of shade on things that, you know, what good humble groups of people can offer other people who want, you know, want love and, and want to be validated and be in that sense of community. So all that to say, like, I, you know, I, I blame um, me and I blame, you know, folks like me for being hypocritical. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and, and screwing it nice up in the past. There, so, so, okay. I appreciate that round. Let's um, we're going to, we're going to attack one of the, 
a gospel. So hope we don't want to attack a gospel, but we, we, <laughs> we engage a gospel um, as one of our next installments of the series. Um, Cyrus, you're about to move. Um, have you made any letters or anything to the people that you want to, uh, to speak to? Um, no, not yet. I've been, uh, primarily wrapping up a few classes and getting the, the moving in, but, uh, this is my last weekend of work. So I'm free now. I have a little bit more free time, be able to knock some of that out. Mom and yeah. dad are coming in this weekend to visit you. Are you going to, um, have a kegger while they're there? Uh, how's that going to work out? <laughs> they might, they might be there for, uh, the, the beginning of it. Just, just the, uh, the intro. You think mom and dad are going to recuse themselves of, a of a ranger? I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. What I told them was, you're more than welcome to stay, but this is what's going to be happening. And yeah, okay, I'll so it gets a little explicit. Yeah, I'll be sure to update the audience. Let, let, let you guys know how it went. <laughs> Fair enough, um, yeah, that makes sense. Maybe maybe if, in order to keep them there for a little while, you keep it PG-13. Um, exactly. For a little yeah. while. Yeah. More, more or less within the bounds of uh, a polite society. Um, man, I'm glad we only did the first 15 pages of this. I can't believe I thought we might be able to knock out the whole thing. It's, yeah, man. I, again, reviewing it. I'm like, I'm over my head. I gotta, I gotta chop this up. I know. And I feel like we really, you know, only got maybe 60%, but Hey, I hope it was worthwhile to, uh, those who, who got that 60%. And, uh, I'm sure these issues will resurface as we continue on both through the gospels, through the rest of the manifesto and onwards. So, and, um, uh, uh, on a personal note, you know, asking for prayer, there's one for just me to seek God's guidance and be, and be peaceful with that and to be filled by that. Just, there's a lot of, you know, career options coming up, um, here, there, everywhere. And so choosing those or turning down those, you know, I've been praying that only one door open, but you know, and all the other doors close. And so some of the doors are still opening. And so having to choose between them, I need discernment. And, you know, I want peace to follow what God has, even if it doesn't seem like it's the most profitable, um, you know, is, is that a, God knows the future and I don't. So yeah. I've got to be able to, you know, choose the best one I know and be able to spend time with Kato. Well, lucky for me, no one is, in, I'm not in any danger of being uh, offered any high powered jobs. So I don't have to worry about that anxiety, but I will uh, be sending some some uh, good vibes your way. There is no so yeah, high power job, man. You know what? Like God definitely revealed this to me maybe six months ago. Climbing the rings of some corporate ladder is meaningless, man. It's all it's a smoke. Back to our it's all vapor, baby. It's vapor. It's not it's not nothing and not meaningless. It's vapor. You can grab yeah. it today, but it'll be gone today. Hey, in the words of Karl Marx, all that is solid melts into air. There's there's a there's an intersection in that Venn diagram. I'm telling you. Mm -hmm. um all right man well that said i think we've covered a lot of ground today and thank you for uh doing this with me i'm looking forward to jumping into the gospels as well but uh yeah it's been good Let's keep it up hold on sorry love you love you too man have a good one you too Bye -bye. but principles are eternal and this has been a contest over a principle in this contest brother has been arrayed against brother father against son it is for these that we speak. We do not come as aggressors. Our war is not a war of conquest. We are fighting in defense of our homes, our families, and posterity. This has been Cross of Gold. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'd like to thank Sant Invictus for producing our intro and outro songs. And uh, look forward to seeing you next time.